Okay, so Fiddler on the Roof ties in perfectly to this Russian Revolution of 1905 that we were talking about with Battleship Potemkin. But the the story itself is really just kind of a family drama in this in this Jewish community. So yes, uh, as you kind of alluded to, Logan, I was shocked when I I pulled this up on Amazon to watch it today. And I'm like, oh, man, this is three hours long. And yeah. I had seen it before, but it, it had been a while. So had you had you seen this movie before? No, I'd abso- uh, absorbed a lot of the music through just osmosis because it's so popular and so famous. Right. It's almost, I bet you probably hit the point where you're like, oh, th- that song's from this movie. And then probably had that same moment 10 minutes later. And then again, a half hour yes. after that. Yeah, that happened, yeah. Probably, that happened two or three times, I think. Absolutely. Um, absolutely. But, I even kind of yeah. made notes. It's like, oh, my gosh. That's kind of it's always kind of neat that when you use things you've heard of, you're like, oh, that's what it's from. Oh, right. So like if someone, you know, if someone says, you know, finish the phrase matchmaker, matchmaker, I say, oh, make me a match. And right. Then, you know, gun to my head. What movie is that from? I have no idea. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I guess I'm dead. Oh, <laughs> Fiddler on the Roof. <laughs> yeah. OK, so again, doing this as a bonus episode, largely because this does not depict a specific historical event or involve specific historical characters. So this, those are the ones I don't really like to do as full-on episodes and wouldn't have probably enough to talk about if I didn't have Logan here to kind of just shoot the breeze with as, as we talk about it. So I actually, I've never been a huge musical fan, but I really dig this movie, honestly. And I remember liking the first time I saw it, rewatching it for this with a little more of the historical mindset enjoyed it again the music is really good and honestly man the 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 character of tevya is probably one of my favorite fictional characters of all time like he's just such a cool character yeah he's so funny he's so emotive he is super charismatic it's impossible not to like him he's almost like the big boisterous abusive drunk without the abuse (laughs) Exactly. Yeah. He's just he just has a he's kind of all bluff and bluster, but he has such a good heart at his at his, at his core that you just can't help but love the guy even when he's in the wrong. Right. So, I mean, not not to jump ahead, but again, the plot didn't really happen, but like so like at the end when he tells his estranged daughter, or actually didn't speak to her directly because he basically says she's dead to him, but his other daughters and his wife are talking to her and they're kind of telling her goodbye and he kind of just says loud enough for most to hear and and just says god be with you and i about yeah. started bawling oh man because he spends that entire scene just ignoring her right and you can tell that it is you know it, that that's absolutely devastating to his wife and his daughter who just showed up and his other daughters who are all sitting there that they're like you know she, she came back but we, we can talk about that at the at the end yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so, go, so going back to the movie, and uh, and I did think it was interesting too. So I don't, I didn't really remember exactly what the title kind of meant. Like I knew there was a guy who fiddled on the roof, which is not Tevia. It's just kind of like a local guy who plays the fiddle on the roof. But the way Tevia explains it is, it's almost kind of just this metaphor of kind of a joy of life and enjoying yourself in a skillful way, but at the same time being delicately balanced and could fall at any time. So it's a, it's basically a right. metaphor. But there is a literal fiddler on the roof in the film. He's just kind of a background character who we see a few times. It's really just to give us the title 
and kind of have that metaphor. But the main character is Tevya, who is a, I think they call him a milk farmer. So they don't say dairy man or anything like that necessarily. But yeah, so he's he's got cows and, and a farm there. And they're just, they're just kind of struggling. Like they always have enough to eat and everything. So they're not like starving, but they don't have any more than their own sustenance, basically. And they're kind of yeah. in this poor village. And he's got five daughters. Three of them are kind of getting to marrying age. So basically the whole plot of the film is the marrying off and, and pairing off of these daughters in a world where arranged marriage is the norm. And just kind of dealing with that and arranging a marriage with the butcher who's like older than Tevia. And of course, then the daughter's got the local tailor that's more her age that she actually wants to marry and would be a love match. And just and just dealing with all of those things in general in a time where that was not the norm and just kind of how society is progressing and they have the basically i guess you would probably call him a communist that moves in and befriends the the second daughter and it's kind of like hey you know what we're at the wedding i'm gonna dance with the girl <laughs> yeah yeah it's interesting to see which uh, this was obviously on purpose but at the beginning of the movie the first daughter kind of not not accepting the marriage that he arranges for her and then marrying for love to him that's like you know, that's the end of the world. Like, that's as crazy as it can get, right? But she does still marry, you know, a friend of the family. She does still marry someone who is a practicing Jew. Correct. And basically, you know, still holds all the same social and cultural beliefs and, and values that they do. Then the second daughter marries someone who is just going, it's like a little bit further away from uh, a little bit further outside of Tevye's comfort right, zone. Right, he's kind of a rabble rouser and a revolutionary. Yeah, right, right. He's he's still a Jew though. Correct. So he's still a Jew. So it, you know, in the end, he's able to reconcile that in his head. Win over Tevye, yeah, or get Tevye to reluctantly agree to the match. Yeah, right. And then the third daughter marries just a straight up Russian kid. Right, Christian. Right, Russian Orthodox kid. Yeah. Right, and that's kind of the last straw for Tevye. He's like, you know, oh, I I can't go there. That's that's too much, you know, can't accept that. And then at the end of the movie, we find out that ultimately he still loves his daughter and, you know, that, that his family is the more important thing. Right. Just despite him saying that, you know, she's dead to us. We don't have that daughter anymore. And he still ignores her when she comes to say goodbye at the end. But he still throws in that line. And it's just God be with you. And almost like he's not even saying it to her. Like he's just reminding his other daughters to tell it to her. But the fact that he's not actually denying her existence, and like you said, she, it's his daughter and he still loves her. And again, I just about lost it. When it that's, and I'd seen it before, I just kind of forgot that little moment. And it's just so, so poignant. So what we haven't mentioned, it, so that's, that's basically the main plot for the, as far as the characters are concerned. But then what's happening on the background, and it does kind of tie into the second daughter's husband, is just kind of the revolutionary stuff. But then also... Yes. Again, the reason we're talking about this is kind of the treatment of Jews in Russia at the time. And this is also it also connects to the uh, the constable character, which I actually thought was like the most interesting part of the movie yeah. was uh, Tevya and the, the constable, their relationship. Because at the, you know, at the beginning of the movie, it's when his horse gets hurt. So he's pulling his own cart and the constable just kind of jokes with them. You know, where's your horse? And he's like, oh, you know, my horse is hurt, your honor. Ha ha. And, then, you know, it's, it's like fun. Then after uh, after Tevye gets super drunk after he arranges his first daughter's marriage, he meets the constable outside the bar, and the constable tells him, um, "Hey, just so you know, we're gonna get orders to have a pogrom here 
it's basically just a fancy word for well not a fancy word but it's basically just a word for like an anti-semitic riot in russia yes basically we're, we're, we're gonna get orders to knock heads around right either either actors from the state directly like you know the police or an independent quote-unquote independent movement that's just condoned or sponsored by the state just basically comes into a jewish community and beats people breaks things destroys businesses that kind of stuff but what i really liked about the movie is that they don't necessarily portray the constable as a mustache twirling i'm a racist and i don't care villain he legitimately thinks that he is being a good friend to Tevya just by telling him that it's coming and basically saying, hey, man, orders is orders. And there's there's a couple things that he says where he's like, uh, you know, he, he tells Tevya like, oh, you're he, I don't remember if he says you're funny or you're smart, even for a Jew or something like that. Yeah. Yeah. I just I just thought that that was super interesting that like they made that character to where he probably doesn't think that he's the bad guy. He probably doesn't even necessarily think that he's racist. Right. But he still takes it for granted that he's better than Tevya, even though he likes Tevya. Right. He just thinks he he doesn't think he's better out of a out of a, of a spite. He's just like, well, that's just the way it is. And you know, you're a good guy, though. But I kind of got the impression that if you if you pull that character out of the movie, and you say, hey, hey, man, why do you why do you hate Jews so much? And he says, oh, he, you know, he would probably respond, well, I I don't hate Jews. You know, I I have Jewish friends. Right. Right. I, right. I don't, I'm not racist against Jews. I mean, yes, I'm I'm doing all of this, you know, state sponsored and state condoned violence against them, but right. that's just because I'm being told to. That I'm just doing my job, but I'm not I'm not a racist. Right, right. Even though he also does think he's better than them. Right. Yeah. Because Tev Tev even says like, oh, you should have been a Jew, or like you you could you could almost be, you could almost basically you could almost be a Jew, and like Tevya means it as kind of a compliment, like we're equals, and the guy's like, ha, you're always joking around. That's what I like about you. Like, how ridiculous yeah. is it that you would say that? That's funny. Right, but he thinks that that's endearing, not it's, insulting. Exactly, exactly. But because it's so taken for granted that he's above Tevya, though. Yeah, but I think that that character of the constable, it's a good way to demonstrate how, you know, we go from at the beginning of the movie and at this time period, people living in peace and harmony. And then you have this white supremacy, white nationalism, anti-Semitism kind of thing start to creep in a little bit. You start to see in the constable and his cronies this kind of nationalism tied to race that when it's allowed to be taken to the extremes, like obviously this is 1905 and yeah, they're just roughing up a couple of small neighborhoods, but then it ends up basically throughout the first half of the 20th century, just building and building um, all this anti-Semitic and racist sentiments in in Eastern Europe and, and in Europe as a whole. Uh, and it culminates in the Holocaust. But I just thought it was, it's, you know, a lot of the times when we think about that kind of stuff, we think, oh, yeah, the Holocaust, it's so bad. And I think a lot of people, myself included, are kind of like, well, how, you know, I just I just don't understand how anyone could ever could ever condone that kind of thing. And, you know, when someone says, yeah, let's just put these, you know, people in the camps and, and gas with it, how did anyone think that was a good idea? And it didn't, it didn't start there, right? It starts with like the little on a small local level with people like the constable who think they're just following orders and, oh, it's not that bad. And they just make that argument over and over and over again until, you know, Holocaust. Right. The Holocaust didn't come out of nowhere. It was centuries in the making. Yeah. So you mentioned the pogroms. Did they use the word pogroms in the film itself or were you just looking that up yeah. after that? Okay. So basically the guy, I don't remember the word he uses. The constable, he says something like, we're going to have a demonstration or we're going to have a, 
a something. So he doesn't call it a pogrom in the in the. No, but Tevye says a pogrom here. Gotcha. Okay, I actually missed the use of the word in the film. Okay. Oh. Okay. Because yeah. because what, what we should mention here is that so it, it's almost even kind of ancillary to it. So the the pogroms that you're talking about were basically a decades long thing. They weren't just in 1905. So if anything, they're not really a part of the 1905 revolution other than it is kind of just part of that heightened tension thing and of ethnic minorities kind of being oppressed and then rising up in other areas. And then, of course, then we see the second daughter's husband getting involved in the actual revolution when he goes to, like, Kiev and and, and all that kind of stuff. So it is still at the same time period. But the pogroms themselves were happening for decades. I think they said the worst year was actually 1881. And they were happening for a, a long, long time. And what we also haven't mentioned yet is basically where this is all taking place. They're in an area called Pale of Settlement or the Pale of Settlement, which is basically, it sounds like as the Russian Empire kind of took over parts of Eastern Europe where a lot of Jews already were. So basically they expanded the empire, but also wanted to kind of keep the Jews concentrated, which I mean, I'd say poor choice of words, but that's actually an accurate choice of words. And exactly. so they kind of forced existing Rus- or existing Jews within Russia to kind of go to this spot. And basically that was like the only place they were kind of allowed to be. And it's basically in mostly what's I think now modern Ukraine. So honestly, we're kind of right on top of where battleship Potemkin was as far as I think Odessa is actually in the Pale of Settlement and looking at the map there. Yeah. Yeah, because the big city, quote unquote, big city to this village is Kiev. Yes, because that's yes. where the uh, that's where that revolutionary kid is is from, and then where he goes back to, like towards the middle of the movie, is is Kiev. Right. So they're probably in the in the northern part of it. But as far as the Pale Settlement itself, I, like, it looks like it includes Minsk and stuff like that. But yes, they're just kind of in the poor yeah. village, poor farming village in this kind of Jewish region of Russia at the time that was kind of dedicated. For that purpose, it's actually set aside in the late 1700s by, I don't think it was Catherine the Great, I think it was Catherine the Second, it said, but, and then existed through basically the Russian Revolution. The pogroms, uh, the ones in, in 1881, and then, you know, basically for the next 20 years, it says here it cost thousands of Jewish lives and it forced more than a million, well, it forced a lot more than a million Jews to immigrate, but more than a million of them ended up in America. Yes, yes, that, that's, that's definitely worth mentioning. This is one of the biggest times for uh, Jews coming to the United States. Right, which they talk about at the end of the movie. The one guy says, oh, I'm going to Chicago, America. And they say, oh, well, we're going to New York, America. We'll be neighbors. Yes. <laughs> and then uh, I also thought it was interesting, though, too, then the, the one daughter, actually the daughter who I think married the, the Christian boy, said they were going to Poland. And you think this is yeah. 19, 1905, and you're just thinking, oh, man, like, them as you know they're you know probably in their late teens early 20s at that point so you just know that they're going to be the people if they stay in poland they're going to get rounded up you know three four decades in in the future when they're kind of in middle age there and it's almost kind of a probably an intentional foreshadowing by the movie honestly because so the movie's from 1971 i didn't see what year the play was actually written it was 1964. Exactly. So they had the hindsight, of course, of, of what had actually gone down in World War II. And that's definitely kind of prevalent throughout throughout the movie. Right. Uh, one, on one newspaper quote here, this is from the New York Times in 1903 from another pogrom. Just kind of just, and I'm sure I'm saying that word wrong, but just kind of just how the general treatment of Jews in Russia at the time. So again, from the New York Times, it says, the anti-Jewish riots in Russian city name that I don't need to try to pronounce are worse than the censor will permit to publish. 
there was a well-laid-out plan for the general massacre of Jews on the day following the Orthodox Easter. The mob was led by priests, and the general cry, Kill the Jews, was taken up all over the city. The Jews were taken wholly unaware and were slaughtered like sheep. And, and again, continuing on here, it talks about the number of people uh, uh, died, and it says the newspaper is actually wrong here, but 40-some people dead, uh, 500 injured, and uh, it continues. The scenes of horror attending this massacre are beyond description. Babies were literally torn to pieces by the frenzied and bloodthirsty mob. The local police made no attempt to check the reign of terror. At sunset, the streets were piled with corpses and wounded. Those who could make their escape fled in terror, and the city is now practically deserted of Jews. So again, that's from the New York Times in 1903 regarding what was going on with the Jews in Russia at the time. Again, it basically, that's darn near genocide, other than the numbers are, I guess, I hate to say the numbers are low, but like, it wasn't like they were killing thousands necessarily in that one incident. But again, stuff like that was happening for decades, and they just would like, just kind of randomly knock heads, uh, the Jews there, and just make it miserable for them. And so the other place they went when they were fleeing Russia, other than the United States, was also Israel. And they mentioned that in the movie as well, is that some, uh, the, the old lady, the matchmaker, is, uh, is going to go to Jerusalem. That's right, yeah. And, and of course, then that's part of the, I guess that'd be part of what the Zionist movement, right? Of just kind of the Jews kind of slowly working their way back to help populate, repopulate the Holy Land before, before, of course, we get to uh, 1947 and the establishment of Israel. So it's, it's all connected. And again, I, I, I say it over and over again. And of course, as we get into the 20th century here, it becomes more and more manifest, but the history is not some distant, thing it's it's all connected and us right now here we're still debating a lot of these same issues that have these ties to stuff we're talking about from hundreds of years ago and like it's just kind of fascinating but it's you know more than that it's important i think it is important to understand the context of, of all this stuff and it's like so and you know for example do holocaust deniers deny the massacre of jews in russia also like it's just i don't i don't understand like it's just it, it's all part of this one piece and just to deny it or to neglect to uh, appreciate the uh, impact of it is just ignorant and irresponsible, I guess. Yeah, I think it's it's definitely important to you know to learn about stuff like this. Which Holocaust deniers, I think you know they'll make their arguments for nineteen you know the nineteen thirties to nineteen forty five. But I mean this this stuff's been going on. I'm I'm talking about anti semitism specifically here since the Middle Ages. Yes, and I'm going to attempt to, I didn't do the, the redo the research here, but so I think it was in Outliers that Malcolm Gladwell talked about, okay, basically, again, another kind of thing of the ripple effects, the way I understand it, again, this is kind of my memory from reading this book 10 years ago and other things I've kind of heard since then, but basically, the Jews in, in Europe basically weren't allowed to own land so that none of them were farmers, so that they're forced into the cities where they learned trades like they would become you know tailors or butchers like we saw in the movie here or i mean the equivalent of accountants or just you know just whatever it is they, they would learn some skill so then when everyone's emigrating to the united states well the germans and the well the irish came later you know but let's say that you know the germans and the english and you know the norwegians they're all farmers so they get to the city and they either move out and go find land, or if they're stuck in the city, they're manual laborers because they don't have any skill beyond farming. Whereas the Jews are coming over and it's like, oh, well, I'm already a great baker, so I'm going to open a bakery. So they had more success in, in the United States and then were more able to send their children to college 
So basically, Gladwell was saying the reason you have a disproportionately high percentage of Jewish doctors and Jewish lawyers is because of that financial success, because of their persecution in Europe, leading to them being skilled versus unskilled when they came to the States. Well, I just thought it was kind of fascinating, something I would never have considered uh, before reading that. Yeah, I'd, I'd never heard that before, but that, that totally makes sense. So let's talk about just the movie itself as a production. So I don't know if you looked, but guess how old the guy playing Tevia was when this was filmed? Oh, man. Uh, 55? 36. No way. He was 36. So wow. he's only 50 Is that years... makeup or did he actually look like that at the time? I, they probably grayed his beard, and I don't know if the beard was real or not. But uh, it's also cool, too, is so the guy just goes by Topol. Like, he, he had, it's his last name, but he basically he is kind of like, like Madonna or Cher. He's Israeli, right? Yeah, yeah. So Israeli actor, and he just goes by Topol, which I thought was kind of cool. And what was neat, too, is basically he played Tevia on stage and screen over 3,500 times in his career. Wow. I mean, that's that's basically, what is that, once a, once every 10 days for 10 years kind of thing? Or, or, or no, sorry, once a, it'd be once a day for 10 years if he were yeah. to, yeah. So, but, he, but, but it was basically over 40 years. Of course, right. it helps when he starts in his early to mid-30s because he had done it on stage before he had done this film production. And he's still alive, but I think he's retired from playing Tevia. But basically, he was playing Tevia from like the 60s into well into the 2000s. He was still doing performances as Tevia. So that's how you get to 3,500. But I thought that was really cool. And the movie was nominated yeah. for, let's see, count up real here, uh, eight Oscars, including Best Picture. Topol was nominated for Best Actor. It won for yes. Cinematography and Sound. And it won for Best Music Scoring for John Williams because, of course, it did because yep. John Williams is the man. Yep, you, you beat me to it. So I guess he didn't like he didn't like, like and I'm not sure exactly how that works too because he obviously didn't like write the music because it was a you know a, a Broadway musical before that and that's not really his thing. But as far as scoring the movie goes and the, the accompanying music, so I'm not sure exactly what all he wrote then for the movie. But it was enough to get him uh, not or did he actually did he say one? Or was nominated. Yeah, he won. Yeah, he yep. won he the got, Oscar. No, he yeah. got an Oscar this yeah. year. Yep. Yeah, so that's that's yeah. uh, that's kind of insane. When he was most recent nomination was just yeah last year. Side note for the uh, the film nerd part of the of the podcast. Absolutely. John Williams, man, what a career. <laughs> I mean, yeah, it's it's kind of nuts. I can't I can't even count the nominations here. Like, it's insane that he won an Oscar for this and like. I didn't even know that he wrote this, but like, I mean, he's just been, he's just so ubiquitous. I, I don't think people necessarily understand, you know, if they're, if they're not into to this kind of thing, like how much iconic movie music is the work of John Williams. I mean, the Jaws soundtrack, the Star Wars soundtrack, the Indiana Jones soundtrack. Like right. it's, Even the Superman music is iconic and, you know, just music you would definitely recognize. E.T. when they're going by the moon. Like, that's all John Williams. Jurassic Park. Jurassic Park. And all how, how does one person think of that many unique scores? Especially when there, a lot of them are simple. A lot of his stuff. He's Harry Potter, too. Like, a lot of his stuff is it's just a few notes and it kind of gets your mind going and you know immediately what song it is after three notes. And they're all oh so unique. Gosh. It's like, how do you keep coming up with new stuff when you're in, like, your 80s now? If somebody, if a composer made just, you know, had just one impact on music that was as big as, say, the Star Wars theme song, like right. that would make someone's entire career. And this guy's done it 
like a dozen times. Right. And of course, well, and then Star Wars itself has so many. You got like Luke's theme, you got you got the Imperial March is completely different than that yep. and just no, yep. it's uh yeah, de- definitely a worthwhile tangent to talk about John Williams because yeah. I had no idea when I was going I saw the credits at the beginning and I was like, "John Williams, are you kidding me?" Yeah. And then yeah, just realized just now that he won the Oscar for it. That's that's crazy. Also, it says the NBC Sunday Night Football theme written by John Williams. <laughs> what? That's <laughs> Yeah. That's insane. That's <laughs> insane. And then the director of the movie, Norman Jewison, I recognized his name, but I'm going to have to look real quick and see what else he directed. Oh, see okay, he's probably more of a Broadway guy it looks like, huh? Cuz a lot of his stuff is musicals. Yeah. I mean, he did direct like uh, Denzel Washington's The Hurricane and stuff like that, but uh, mostly musical guys. So I'm guessing I know his name from Broadway stuff more than anything else, but I, I did recognize the name. Oh, uh, so I, uh, <laughs> I'm I'm on the Wikipedia page right now for Fiddler on the Roof, and I'm scrolling down, and I clicked on the Best Director link instead of the Norman Jewison link, and it brought up without even realizing it, it brought up the page for Best Director. And I'm thinking, I'm looking at the page for Norman Jewison. I'm like, man, that guy looks a lot like Alfonso Cuaron. <laughs> it is a picture of Alfonso Cuaron. <laughs> yeah, and, and he does have some movie credits here. I guess I, I should say he was, uh, well, of course, all these are ours uh, as producers. Never mind. So, no, but he directed Moonstruck. Oh, there you go. He was nominated for In the Heat of the Night, the one best picture. And oh, okay. So, okay. So, so I'm sure he did some uh, theater, but yeah, def- definitely a, a name to appreciate for what he's uh, brought to film as well. Uh, uh, the, my one last little random note here. So what I, I did, because just cause I, when I was on Topol's page, it did bring up the term that I wasn't actually familiar with here. And I'm, I'm trying to think how to pronounce this. Mononymous? Mononymous? Yeah, mono- mononymous. Am oh, I yeah, mononymous. Yeah. yeah so, like Cher like or uh, Adele. Yes. And I had not heard the word mononymous before today. So I thought that was kind of kind of neat. Okay, yeah, I think we can just kind of sign off. So yeah, thanks for listening to this bonus episode, and we'll get back with our regularly scheduled broadcast next Tuesday. 